Welcome to BEWorks Conversations. I'm Kelly Peters, the CEO and co-founder of BEWorks. In this series, I talk with the world's leading scientists who are experts in behavior. In each episode, we explore how their cutting-edge research can help us understand and tackle the challenges we face as a society. And we talk about how organizations should apply these insights to move forward during and after COVID-19. I'm very happy you're here. In this episode, I'm speaking with Mike Norton. Mike is a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. His work addresses a range of topics related to decision-making and consumer behavior. His research has been featured in leading media outlets, and he's written influential op-eds for publications, including the New York Times. He co-authored the book, Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. In our conversation, we talk about how COVID-19 is impacting our rituals and how it's leading us to create new ones. We also discuss the role behavioral scientists should play in a pandemic. And finally, we discuss fascinating insights into why we behave in the particular and quirky ways we do. Thanks for joining us. All right, well, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation with me about, well, all kinds of things, actually, that I want to chat with you about. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about um, kind of how we're doing and how our pandemics are going. And I talked to you about how one of the things I want to work on is starting to exercise so I'm curious about how, how you're finding uh, habits going for you. Yeah, I was, I have been thinking a lot that the, I think the very best outcome you can have during this pandemic right now is that you're bored, which a lot of people are complaining about because being bored is no fun. But if you are feeling bored, you are in like the luckiest group of humans in the world. And so I'm in that group and I feel very grateful. Uh, but it does mean that, um, to the extent that I had any good habits, they're gone. So every, because everything changed. Uh, and so you're just good habits and bad habits, I think just got completely wiped out and everyone's trying to create new ones now, both good and bad probably, but hopefully more good than bad. Yeah, definitely. What would be some of the, uh, the good habits that you've lost? Uh, I think like having a regular, vaguely regular work schedule, I think is, um, helpful for everybody so that you know when you're on and when you're off and i think i mean work-life balance which is not a helpful term anyway but to the extent that's helpful has been blurred anyway for many people and now obviously it's blurred even more for everybody and so i think just the idea of going to a place to do a thing and then going to a different place to do another thing i think should it matter maybe not does it matter psychologically i think hugely and so leaving things behind is something we all struggle with anyway. And at least we used to be able to close a door or something or get in a car or ride a bike between. And now when we have no between, I think it's a bit harder. Yeah. Is this impacting your uh, creativity and product, like, and productivity? Because I, I think from my point of view, you, you've been very strong at both. You've been a very creative researcher 
and you've been a very productive scientist for many years. Um, how, how are those, how are you doing on, on that front? I think that um, productivity is, is down for sure. Um, partly because of stuff and partly because if you haven't felt at least a little, well, not everyone in the world, but let's say academics, if you haven't felt a little bit that what you're doing isn't incredibly important, you know, like life or death. Um, some academics are really working on life or death issues. A lot of us, I think, even if we're working on important things, they're not life or death right now. And so it does give a different perspective, I think, on um, how critical it is that you run study seven for the revision. Uh, you know, is that going to change the world or is it going to be helpful in the review process? So I think there's also some level setting on what's the, what's the urgency and right amount of time to be spending um, on work. I think for creativity, um, I think a lot of social scientists have had the experience that this current situation is crowding out any other ideas that aren't related to the current situation. Both, I think, because we tend to work on things we're thinking about, but also because it feels um, important to try to help in some way or another. I think a lot of us wish that we had real skills, <laughs> real science skills, so that we could be in a lab somewhere really helping. I think um, many of us feel, is there something that we can do that's, that's helpful, like figuring out how to help people wear masks or something, you know, behaviors like that, that maybe we could be good at helping with because we can't help with the big things. But that does mean that the creativity for the random stuff can get a little bit crowded out because being crowded in right now is this situation. And, you know, as a social scientist, a lot of what we work on is social interaction. And so that's been curtailed. And so now you're thinking about what are the effects of isolation on people? And then you have to change your entire mindset around what it is that you're, you're studying. And so I think some people at least are in a transition. They literally can't study what they were studying before because it doesn't exist anymore. And so then it's, what's the other thing that, that we can start to look at? So one of the things that you have looked at in the past is um, extensively is, is rituals. And how has the pandemic affected your scholarship in that area? We um, started a project, my student Jimena Garcia Rada and um, Jim and Nam started a project actually on parenting rituals uh, during, so we had been thinking about studying parenting rituals anyway, uh, because Jimena studies decision-making in couples broadly defined, which is a totally fascinating area <laughs> of research because so many decisions are made in couples and we don't know that much about it. But the idea originally was to study how parents use rituals with their kids, just in general, you know, at bedtime and getting them to eat their vegetables and whatever. And if you are or have ever been a parent, you know that parents instinctively create rituals. We don't call them rituals, but somehow we, when we're trying to get our kid to do something, something in us is like, let's make it into a thing. Let's do the this bunny first and then that story and then we'll go see that person and then we'll do that story and then we'll get in bed with these three stuffed animals and then we'll go to bed. Violating it is absolutely unacceptable. Carrying it through is sometimes helpful in getting the kid to do the thing, go to bed or whatever. So we totally use them all the time without realizing it, I think. 
And then the idea was, so we wanted to study that, just what are parents doing with this? But then the, literally the, this happened as we were starting to study that. And then the question became, how are those rituals changing? So um, in a couple of surveys that we've done since this began, we've literally just asked parents, do you have any new rituals? And what's sort of been happening is that every time we do the survey, more and more parents say yes. So it's, it's as though many started them. And then a couple of weeks later, when we ask again, more have, and a couple of weeks later, if we ask again, more have, which suggests like some people are faster to it, but everybody's sort of getting there and what they're adapting them for. So in the old world, it was like bedtime and vegetables and homework and stuff. And in the new time, when we say, what are the, what are the rituals for? It's kind of obvious, but it was still interesting to us, hand washing and mask wearing. So when the new thing comes into the world and the kids need to do it, we also, at least in part, grab rituals to try to help kids do that. So we make up a thing for wearing the mask or we make up a thing for washing the hands. And again, the idea is that that can um, maybe help promote the behavior. We can't observe the kid's behavior, but we can observe that parents who use rituals report feeling better about their parenting. So at least a little bit, at least subjectively, uh, having a ritual seems to help um, how you're feeling about your parenting. Obviously, maybe parents who feel good create rituals. We, it's not an experiment, so we don't know for sure. But it's so interesting to me that um, we turn to them. When a new thing comes to the world, we say, uh, what can we do? We do all kinds, we do a million things, but one of the things we do is try to start some new rituals. That's, that's really wonderful. Um, and I think understanding that is very important because we have the opportunity to share those rituals that other people discover and to help people who hadn't thought of those ideas incorporate that practice. Um, so there's, a, there's a, a sharing effect and then there's also the benefit of it being very self-reinforcing um, so, so I think it's probably good um, to, to just step back for a second and help people understand the difference between a routine and a ritual and what that sort of magical difference is that leads to, a, a, you know, a stronger commitment to the behavior. So it's, it's, the first answer is it's very slippery and fuzzy. So my answer will be very frustrating probably um, in part because I think it's inherently slippery and in part maybe because we just haven't nailed it yet as scientists, but um, many habits look a lot like rituals, routines and habits. There's lots of rituals that don't look like routines and habits. So you can think about um, a funeral um, isn't really a, like a, a routine that you do every day, hopefully when, when you get up or a wedding, hopefully you only do that once or a couple times in your life. Um, so there's some rituals that we know are uh, not single shot, but they don't have the element of habit. Like I need to do it repeatedly. And if I fail, it's a bad thing. What, you know, funerals, you don't feel like you failed if you did it wrong or something like that. They're a little bit different. I think though, for the ones that are similar, like, ha you know, habits and rituals being close, I always think of it as um, it's sort of like habits are the behaviors themselves and rituals are the other meaning things that you add around it. So this is a cheesy example, but um, I've asked many, many groups of people, if you think about in the morning, what do you do first? Do you brush your teeth and then take a shower? Or do you take a shower and then brush your teeth? Which one are you actually? Um, I, I'm a multitasker. <laughs> you do them both at the same time? 
Yeah, I hop in the shower and I keep toothbrush and toothpaste there. So here's what's fascinating is people who watch this will be judging you very harshly if they do a different thing. But if they do the same thing, they'll say, oh, she's good. I like hers. So <laughs> um, it's weird. So in the population of the world of people I have surveyed, to be clear, it's, it's roughly like 10% do at the same time. And then the, uh, the remaining is 50-50. So like half of people brush first and then shower and half shower and then brush, which is first off bizarre. Because if you ask people, why do you do it in that order? No idea. If people say my way is the good way and I say, oh, did you one time for a month alternate every day and keep track of which was better? Of course not. When did you start doing it that way? No idea. So we just do them that way. And then if I ask people to think about switching it, so like tomorrow, do you want to do it in another order? Again, about half of people say, sure, that's totally fine. Like, yeah, brush my teeth, shower, it doesn't matter. And about half of people say, mm, no, like I don't, <laughs> I'd rather not change the order. And if you say why, they say, well, it's, um, I just feel better when I do it my way. It makes me feel like I'm ready for the day. And if I think about doing it the other way, I think I'd feel a little off. Like it would just, my day would feel a little off. Or these are like the words they use, off, not ready, and things like that. And so habits and rituals, the people who say, I, sure, either order doesn't matter, they sort of have like a habit. They do those things in the morning and they get them done. The ritual is like on this continuum. If you start to care about the order without really being able to explain it, and if doing it the order you like makes you feel better than doing it the order you don't like, now we're moving toward rituals. The order of things matters to you. Probably the time you do it starts to matter to you, right? So you're like um, a minute late and other people are like, what does it matter when I brush my teeth? All of those things about the specificity and the feeling move you further, further toward a ritual. Is it like ritual ritual, like a communal funeral? No, of course not, but it's further along. So that's sort of how I think about it is there's elements that move us from mundane behaviors all the way up. But the most frustrating thing, and then I'll stop, is that as a scientist, two people doing the exact same behaviors one of them can be doing it and it's a habit and the other one can be doing it and it's a ritual so we can't even say like if you brush your teeth like this versus that or something because if you brush and then shower and somebody else brushes and then showers one person it's just a habit and another person it's a ritual and that makes it really really hard to tell which one is which and you know if you, like if you've ever been to religious services for a faith that you're not a part of you do the same things, you know, because you want to fit in. So from the outside, it looks like you and the person next to you are both performing a ritual. But the person next to you, it's like they're thinking about their family and their grandparents and history. And you're thinking about nothing religious at all. You're just trying to fit in. So again, it looks like everyone's doing a ritual. But some people are going through the motions and other people, it really is meaningful. So... The parents that are working on these rituals around helping their children um, with hand washing and mask wearing um, are are setting uh, those kids up, you know, for for um, hygiene and uh, success. But we have a number of adults that are resistant to um, to to these changes. 
How much do you think maybe the habits that they have in terms of, you know, how they get ready to go out the door, they're just not comfortable with that same level of, of disruption and how much can we maybe explain it as, as a function of not wanting to change our behavior in that way? Not, not even necessarily about perceptions of risk and, you know, our understanding of disease transmission and those technical aspects, but merely mm -hmm. this resistance to wanting to change behavior in that way. Yeah, I think one of the, the curses of being human is that um, the way that I do things and the amount of time that I do them and the speed with which I do them is the correct way uh, without even thinking about it. And so, and I don't even realize that, it's just I do things my way and I don't think about them at all. And then somebody says, can you do it differently? And then I say, well, well hold on, right? So toothbrushing and, and taking a shower you haven't been thinking about it as a ritual, but if I ask you to switch them, you'll say no. And then suddenly it's this thing that's really important to you. I think a lot of other behaviors are the exact same way that, you know, that I wash my hands like this. And then someone says, wash them differently. And suddenly I say, no, this is the way to wash your hands. <laughs> Even though I never thought about that before, we have it in us to think that our way is the right way. Like mask wearing is so fascinating as a social scientist because in the winter, people wear scarves when it's cold and it doesn't ruin our lives to wear a scarf. Like it, it doesn't impede, you know, our goals or our whatever we're trying to get done. It's just like, yeah, I just wear the mask. Cause it, I mean, I wear the scarf cause it's a little cold, but a mask, which is, I know it's not exactly the same thing, but a mask, which covers the same thing. It's absolutely not right. Because that's not what I usually do when I'm going out to do this and so we do get stuck on the thing that I'm doing is the correct way and the way that someone else is doing it or or asking me to do it is the wrong way and it's very hard to get through that I just said this is a dated reference but um, George Carlin has this amazing line about driving and he says um, any something like it's funnier if he said it but something like anyone driving slower than you is an idiot and anyone driving faster than you is a maniac yeah. and then <laughs> But of course, if you change your speed, right, it's, it's completely relative, right? So, and I love it because it captures something so fundamental about us, which is whatever I'm doing right now is correct and the baseline and deviations are wrong. And if you try to push me toward them, it's totally unacceptable. Even if tomorrow I might be doing it the other way, just because of randomness. So one of the things that was uh, in your comment about the difference between uh, these, you know, routines and rituals is this element of of meaning. So then, wouldn't our public health leaders, as they're trying to encourage uh, the adoption of of the guidelines that um, they've identified, wouldn't it be beneficial then if they understood the role of helping people to ascribe meaning? Um, it's not just here's the behavior, wear a mask, here's how to wear the mask, you know, here's how to clip it over your nose and so on, that, that they also, in, a, in a whatever facts and figures go with it, but some element of the ascribing of meaning. So, so what is that, you know, how do, we, how do we think about meaning and how, do we, and how do we share meaning? There's a funny thing about rituals and meaning because if you think about like the word ritual, you do think of time-honored traditions you know that many are religious but they're or they're communal or they're in your family like the way you've done thanksgiving since 
your great grandmother and father did Thanksgiving. There's this sharedness to it. And that is part of why it's meaningful. But at the same time, we make up our own rituals all the time that become meaningful to us right now. If you've ever had a superstition, like you're watching your, for me, it's the Red Sox and I'm, you know, wearing a hat and they win. And then I'm like, I got to wear this hat for the rest of the season because it caused them to win. There's no ancient history of hat wearing for baseball. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's not like a handed down from thousands of years ago. I'm pretty sure baseball didn't exist, but we can right away think this is really meaningful and important. I better keep doing it. And we also have the thousands of years old ones, but it's good because it means that we are capable of attaching meaning to new behaviors in the moment. If we get the link right, we can make the hat magical if we do, if we do it the right way, whereas it was just a hat before that. So there is some hope, I think, in thinking about how do we make the behaviors, not just like the right thing to do, but a meaningful um, thing to do. I have no data on this at all, but I have been thinking a lot about the um, hand washing is what's the right time to do it. And we get a bunch of different songs. People keep telling us different songs to sing, mm -hmm. but um, like happy birthday is a very weird thing to do. You know, like, well, we don't use, why would we use that for washing our hands? That's for birthdays. So it seems like a strange thing to co-opt into washing our hands because it's, it's like incongruent with the task. So I've been thinking a lot about what's the right song to wash your hands to. And it's not the right length of time, but you, you could think about something like the Star Spangled Banner or something that is more meaningful to you because it is something that is about um, communal sacrifice, right? Like the what, what you're doing when you're washing your hands, yeah, you're helping yourself, blah, 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 but you're also helping everybody else in your community. So I would, I've been thinking a lot about how to attach other meaning embedded in that that's more about helping and spirit and patriotism is a weird word, but I mean it in a positive way, which is caring about other people around you. Um, but I have no idea if it would work, so I can't suggest that. But even just things like that, what is the other thing that you're attaching to those behaviors, I think is important to think about. Yeah, I think that uh, the, there was a really interesting project that was done trying to change which side of the road people drove on. <clears throat> and I think Sweden was one of the last countries that had the, that had to make the, make the switch. And one of the tactics that they did that apparently was very popular was uh, a song that helped nudge people to switch the side of the road that they were driving on and it became a very uh, popular song but I, I and and i think that it was one of the things that was was highly effective in in helping people change that behavior and remember the date of the change and all of mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. but i think one of the things that is interesting in your star spangled banner um choice is that uh, it definitely um is aligned to um um, this element of patriotism and it aligns to then um, moral, you know, the morality uh, challenge. It's very interesting that we're seeing um, the ideological lines in terms of believing that COVID-19 is in fact a health challenge. And there's these just fascinating paradoxes here because if we have if we have people of a, of a uh, conservative um, ideology correlating based on some of the research that I've been involved in and other research that I've reviewed being cor correlated with um, less belief in COVID-19 being 
uh, real and more correlated with it being a hoax. It's ironic because um, other research like Jonathan Haidt and others show that there's um, high sensitivity to, um, to disgust, high desire for compliance and acceptance of authority um, in, providing, in providing guidance. I like how the song choice you have kind of taps in taps into that because it's like it it brings that it it is a way of bringing you know patriotism can be a way of bringing social ideals together so that 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 is a thing that might make that particular song choice be uh, a, across the population maybe more effective or helping us reach um, individuals who are feeling a little bit more imposed upon by by all of the things that the pandemic's doing to our society. I've always wanted to do a project and the title of it would be, the title is just take that. And the idea is to think about all the behaviors that we, and I'm pointing my finger at myself for sure, we do, which are to spite something or someone. And it's like you're like shaking your fist at the sky saying, take that someone. So if you, you know, if you don't recycle if you throw your plastic bottle into the trash and you're like, yeah, it's like, take that. But then <laughs> there's nobody there, you know, like take that environment, you know, take that Obama. I mean, you know, it doesn't, those don't care about us. Right. So there's something strange about the, you know, but psychologists call it reactance, this idea of reacting against uh, whatever your parents tell you to do something and you're less likely to do it. But this is reactance against nothing. So I find it very interesting that we have it in us to, so, so if I don't wear a mask, I'm I might just be saying, take that virus. But if you just pause, <laughs> it doesn't, if I'm saying take that government who's overreaching, whether I agree or disagree, that's legitimate. I mean, you, you can have a principled stand, of course, but the behavior that's take that something that's not, <laughs> doesn't care. Like the virus is not like, oh, he got me, but it feels good sometimes to do that. And that I think is another barrier that, I've been thinking about studying as well in this context, but in many contexts, it's the, like, take that, like, I'll, I'll buy an SUV, take that environmentalist or something. There's something there that's a vague group that we're mad at. We all have it in us. Um, and it, here it really feels like a barrier to people behaving in a way that ultimately we think is in their own uh, best interest. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. Um... Yeah, and the and the mask utilization is interesting because you know you talk about you know many many people uh, many people wear wear scarves already and you know there's just a slight adjustment um, except for I'm I'm also American and I'm from Florida and never never really had to wear <laughs> never really had to wear scarves in the South. Um, but there are other behaviors uh, where where we wear masks, whether it's uh, you know painting projects and construction projects. You know, I happen to already have some N95s around just, just for those things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're fine, right? It's, I mean, they're not comfortable and they're not, obviously it's more, more good, whatever, to not wear a mask. So we know that, but they haven't typically been seen as impossible, you know, to wear, I think is, it's what's so interesting about them. Yeah. But, kids do it. I mean, you have to train kids to wear scarves, right? So when you put mittens on kids, it's the worst thing in the world. 
they can't, you know, they can't grab things. Their fingers are weird. So these things we also had to get trained into thinking are okay. So it, it, for all of us, it takes time to adapt to the new thing, but we know that we can adapt to these different behaviors. It's just, how do we get people to, you know, adopt them a little bit sooner without um, violating their sense of freedom um, or autonomy? Yeah. And we've had a, uh, we've had a, a similar uh, issue in uh, worker safety around the reactants to um, doing things like wearing masks. So we, we've definitely, um, we've definitely seen, seen this issue and, and it also starts to get into um, risk perception, which is, you know, I'm going to be fine. You know, the concern is overblown. You know, I don't, I don't perceive it as something happening to me. Um, definitely not in the short term. Um, there's, there's those forms of, of reactants as, as well that are governed by um, this misunderstanding of risk. I think there's the, um, I think it, I wish that the, every person in the world knew about this research. Um, Ido Erev and his colleagues for a number of years have been studying how we learn from experience and with lots of cool findings, but I, I'll, I'll probably butcher this, so I apologize to the researchers, but um, we tend to learn incorrectly. So like if, if, if there are a 1% chance that I went outside, if I went outside, I'd get struck by lightning. There's not, but let's say there were, and I go outside and I don't get struck by lightning, I update. So I say, oh, I guess it's less likely that I'll get hit by lightning next time. I can keep going out. And you know, you could update a little bit or something. There's some information but we treat experience as evidence that the probabilities have changed because sometimes that's true in the world that you do get new evidence. But with COVID, I think in particular, it's very worrisome because if I go out without a mask and I don't get COVID that day, I guess masks aren't important. And then I can tell other people too, like I didn't get COVID. So there's, there's learning that we do. I think that's very problematic here because yes, the, the odds are low of contracting it at any given point, but if everyone starts to say masks don't help, then the probabilities get bad very, very quickly. So I think we, we want to learn that things are safe. And so we test things and say, I guess it is safe. I guess I can keep doing it. And we're built where if a little bit of a thing is safe, we think more of it is safe too. And that's, that's a whole other. So it's not just, I wore a mask, I didn't get COVID. I won't wear a mask. It's like, I wore a mask, I didn't get COVID. Now I can do other things too, because those are also probably safe. And you add those up and they can be very, very destructive. It's a little bit like weird analogy, but you know, if you try ever tried heroin and you did a little and you're okay, people don't say, oh, I guess I'm okay with doing that amount of heroin. They say, oh, I guess I can do at least that amount and probably more. And then you're down a cycle of, at some point you'll do an amount that's not okay. Yeah. So these, uh... These, these perceptions of risk and then the backfiring effect that, that can occur when either complying with the behavior and so I can do more or I didn't comply with the behavior and nothing happened. Um, I think one of the challenges that we're going to face, um, well, well, first of all, I'm curious about um, with, with the protests that have happened over this past weekend as a reaction to uh, George Floyd's um, um, uh, murder. Um, in Toronto, most of the protesters wore masks. And when I look through the United States, I didn't see the same level of 
compliance with mask wearing and we had large groups of people and I'm curious about the role that feedback loops. So we will potentially see outbreaks as a reaction of some places um, wearing the masks and some places not. But if we don't have that level of data and that level of feedback, it makes it harder for people to accept the relationship. Yeah, and then we have, you know, uh, because the virus has a latency period, so another way we're good at learning is if we do something and the consequences right away, like stick a thing in a light socket, you know, every kid tries that and they're not good. What happens to you? You don't do it again. We're, we're pretty good at learning in that way. We're really bad at learning when consequences are delayed. And with this virus, it's, it's always delayed, which means we can't, we can't quite learn because we don't know often where we contracted it if we have it. And also to back out that, oh, it was probably that thing I did 10 days ago or even two days ago, starts to be harder for people to say, oh, it must have been caused by this, this or that, which just is a, a problem that we have in learning from data that we're not good at delays. So all of these things point to a challenge that we're going to have as more and more people go back to the workforce or students go back to campus. So um, in our research, one of the concerns that's emerging on the top of mind for people is not their own behavior. They're going to do all the right things, but they're worried about the behavior of others and how careful people will manage their, their lives, their contacts, their use of public transit, their, their hand washing, their use of masks and, and their families, but they're a little bit less worried about their own behavior. Um, so I don't, I don't think we necessarily find that surprising. We have um, many, many years, when I was in grad school, actually, um, one of my grad student friends, Benoit Monet, um, we had in New Jersey, there was, I can't remember the cause of it, but there was a crisis where the, the um, public water supply was contaminated briefly. And so people had to conserve water. So they there was enough for drinking water, but they basically said, don't shower don't bathe, don't use that water. So, so we did surveys on um, asking people, were they complying with the ban? And um, I'm sure people were lying and stuff, but plenty of people said, yeah, I actually did take a shower. And if we asked them questions like about themselves, why did you do it? Why did you do it? And sort of like, are you a good person? You know, I did it because I had to, cause you know, I had, I played sports and I was stinky. So I had to take a shower but I'm good, like I care about other people and I care about the environment. But if we said to those same people, um, other people also took a shower, why did they do it? Um, it's because they're selfish and because they're bad people. So the, even if I'm doing the behavior, not, not even just I'm not doing it and I'm judging, now each person who's doing it is saying, I'm doing it for this reason and those terrible people are doing it for the other reason. So whether you're using the mask or not, you're still thinking that people who aren't using it are, are worse people um, than you are, which is very problematic because you don't apply the lens to yourself and say, but wait, I'm, I'm one of those people. Um, and I think that's a very, here again, as something that's, that's very much at play, is failing to apply the same logic <laughs> to other people that we're applying to our own behavior, which of course we all do all the time. Right. So now as employers uh, either continue to manage the essential workforces that have you know, stayed out there 
um, running the economy to the best of their ability. And now more and more employers are starting to prop open the doors and, and bring their employees back. What are some of the learnings besides just putting, you know, here's the policy. What are the rituals that employers can use to strengthen compliance with those guidelines? And what are some of the human insights that need to be taken into consideration um, past, the, past the guideline poster? We have looked a little bit actually in a different project at workplace rituals in general, um, not, not specific to the current situation, but just in general. And, um, and by workplace rituals, I, I don't mean something bizarre. I mean like, oh, we, when we start meetings, we do this kind of thing where this happens and then that happens. And we, don't, we didn't do that at my old company kind of thing. So there's these little things that sort of tell you that you're at the company. Like if you started a new job, everything feels weird for a while. It's just like, what, well, how do they do things around here? And a lot of that is just the implicit little things they do to start and end things and, and stuff like that. And then after a while, it becomes normal to you as well. So for sure, we see people have in the workplace these rituals, both in groups and then also at their own desk, like getting ready for your day or leaving at the end of the day. So we know they're there, which is good in a sense that we do use this kind of psychology at work. Um, how to use it to um, help people follow these behaviors, I don't know yet. I do think that in general, we see that when, so rituals at work that people hate are ones that their managers say, um, we all have to do this from now on at the beginning of every meeting, because like I saw some webinar or something <laughs> where somebody said we should do them. And then everybody hates the person who made them do it. The ones that seem to be more um, effective or meaningful are ones that um, people came up with themselves. So like it has elements of us in it and that's our team ritual, not something that was from a book or imposed by somebody else. So when we get guide, I'm just speculating, when we get guidelines that say do it this way, this way, this way, it might be important to have people think about how they want to implement that. Like how are we going to, so we can't sit you know, closer than X feet together. How are we going to sort that? Not like HR gives us a new seating plan but let us try to develop it in a way that, that feels right to us. There's risk, of course, because we might do it wrong, obviously. So I'm not saying it's a win-win, like perfectly, but it gets rid, of, gets rid of a little bit of the reactance, like I refuse to do it just because I refuse to do it. And again, um, we were all kids once and with kids as well, right? If you tell them to put their shoes on, you can be very angry and they won't put their shoes on. But if you say, what do we need to do before we leave the house? and then they come up with the idea to put their shoes on, they will put their shoes on, right? It's risk because sometimes they say eat cake. So it doesn't always work, but the idea is that by letting them come to it, they'll eventually start to do it um, themselves as well. And I, th I think, I always think of developmental psychology to me is so fascinating. I'm no, I know nothing about it, but the things that kids do were still them. You know, it's, the things that work on them, they, they totally would still work on us because we're still them, but we think they're like silly or I don't need to do that anymore. That's great. Um, so one of the things that um, I think is, is um, emerging from the pandemic is how people think about science. And there's a whole host of 
challenges and opportunities. Some are how people approach their understanding of SARS-CoV-2 based on, on their belief systems. And, and some of the dynamics are happening within the scientific community itself. And even just alluding back to something that you spoke about earlier, which is the desire to help, um, but as a social scientist, not feeling the same level of ability to help because you know, you're not necessarily um, you know, an epidemiologist or a virologist or um, a healthcare worker. You know, all, of, all of these scientists are able to make immediate life-saving uh, uh, contributions, I think was the, to, to, to play that back. Um, and so here we are with um, social science in particular, um, moving very rapidly. Um, things are hitting um, preprint servers um, very quickly. Um, data is sometimes being shared, sometimes not. Um, how do you think social science has been doing overall in terms of how it's contributed, um, what we've learned, and what the field should do better? Yeah, I think that um, what's important, I think, for all scientists to stay in your lane. So I think um, scientists that start to um, speculate about things that they know nothing about, there's also a dated cultural reference, but the, um, for the older folks among us, if you uh, remember from Happy Days, there was this phrase, jump the shark which was, uh, in case people don't know, um, Fonzie was this cool guy and the ratings were declining. So they had an idea that they would have him um, jump over a shark and then everyone would watch because it would be great. So it was basically, you've lost all sense of bearing <laughs> and you've jumped the shark. And I think um, we see scientists go that, very few actually, most scientists stick with their data and what they know. Um, so I think it's tempting now to go beyond what you know because you want to help. So if someone says, hey, how should we, how exactly should we put these chairs so that people will follow the rules? You want to say, well, I, I, based on some things we know, do it like this because you want to help. And sometimes we do know from what we already know so we can really help and sometimes we just don't. And I think it's sometimes hard to say, I, we, we don't know um, and we need to study it right now. And the best scientists say, are willing to say, I don't know uh, but let me study it. Let me get back to you and give you a, a better answer. And I think lots of people have been doing that. You know, like, how do we get people to comply with these things? Well, of course, we know stuff about compliance because there's been lots of amazing research, but we don't exactly know how to make people comply with wearing a face mask. We don't really have that paper. So people are doing that research right now so that soon they can say, look, this seems to work better than that. And I do see lots of scientists reorienting, social scientists reorienting a bit at least in the short term, to try to help solve some of those um, problems. This uh, brings to mind how important interdisciplinarity is in the field, and that in some ways, um, all social scientists are serving as practitioners to what our biological scientists are are identifying as. You know, distance matters. This distance under these circumstances. And it's on us as practitioners to figure out how to facilitate the, the human behavior, be it architectural or something as uh, you know, in, uh, embedded in the human experience as purpose and meaning. 
Yes, I don't. I'm pretty sure social scientists didn't identify that sugar makes you gain weight. I think that was probably a different kind of scientist, but we can help with the, well, now that you know that sugar makes you gain weight, how can we help you eat less if you want to, or exercise more if you want to, or a little good once the thing is known. And we know that once people know the facts, sometimes it doesn't change their behavior that much. That's when I think social scientists can help people um, do more of the thing that they're trying to do, I think is often a helpful way to think about it. Like not make you get on a treadmill if you don't feel like it, but if you say, God, I really wish I could get on a treadmill and we can help you say, here's how you could structure things or here's, here's a way to think about that that might get you on a little bit more than you were planning. So one of the other challenges that we face is it's one thing to help um, encourage people to do a behavior once, but the role that rituals and habits play is, is helping to provide some solutions around um, persistence with a behavior. And um, we face another particular set of complex challenges as people are starting to reach fatigue um, with uh, the um, elements of, of the lockdown. What are some of the things that we should think about as a way to help facilitate the persistence of compliance with these new recommended behaviors? I think we, we definitely know in general that um, building behaviors into an existing routine is very, very helpful. So that um, if you need to uh, wash your hands, you know, when you come into your home or when you leave your home, that it shouldn't be separate from the way. So if you watch when people come into their house, actually there was a cool paper on this and I, I've forgotten the authors and I apologize, but basically it just examined what people do when they come in their house. And uh, it just think of what you do when you go in your house, you, you do the exact same thing every day. Maybe sometimes you have like an extra bag or something, so you do it differently, but even then you have a way you do it when you have an extra bag kind of thing. So we have these routines of like, where do you take your shoes off? Where do you drop your keys? Where do you drop your bag, et cetera? Do you go to the fridge and get, you know, all these things that we all do. If you can build the, the new thing into that as a step in that, rather than you do that and now I have to remember, oh yeah, now I also have to do the other thing. There is some research that suggests you'll be more likely to carry on doing it be because it becomes part of that little routine that you've been doing the whole time. Um, but it's still hard to communicate that to people. Like if I sat with you and watched you go into your house, I could say, why don't you insert hand washing right there? Cause you're already walking by the sink, but it's hard to just say to people, Hey, insert it in your thing. Cause it's hard to know what, you know, where you would put it and things like that. But general principle, I think it's helpful to think about adding it into what you're already doing rather than extra steps that need to be done afterwards. So what are some of the interesting, I guess, natural experiments that you see occurring? The, um, the project that we're working on right now is, um, it's sort of a natural experiment. So we are, we're doing surveys asking people um, if they have symptoms of COVID and if they went to work that day. And, um, as you can imagine, and depressingly, people who feel financial insecurity are people who, even though they have symptoms, they report going to work that day. You see these stories in the media of, of some woman who went to work at a hair salon and you know infected people as though she just felt like doing that. <laughs> 
and not because maybe she needed the income for her family or for herself, you know, so th there's a real disconnect on the choices that people are having to make. But one of the things we see that is that relationship that people who um, specifically feel financially insecure are going to work with these symptoms. Because of that, we can then, hopefully eventually, I should say, because it's ongoing, we could then back out, well, what if we had made those people's income whole before they had to make the decision to go to work with symptoms? How could that have helped stop the spread of COVID? So thinking about not just like the um, when people lose their job, we should support them, which I think that we should, but leaving that aside, very practically speaking, if we're trying to stop the spread of a virus and we know that people are going to work with the virus because of financial reasons, then we should think about the cost of that when we think about how much we should compensate people to stay home. And there was, of course, talk about that. There was an idea. It's not like my idea. Of course, people have had that idea, but we're trying to show with this kind of natural experiment exactly sort of what the parameters are around that. Like if, if we had made more people whole, how much better would it have been? How many outbreaks could we have avoided? Totally back of the envelope. Obviously we don't have all the data just to get a rough sense of that. Something else that's um, embedded within this idea that I think is, um, is very lovely and very important is it's predicated on perspective taking. And several of your comments have been, and ideas and thoughts have been around um, and dependent on perspective taking. One of the things that's very interesting in psychology is, is this distinction between perspective taking versus empathy. Whereas empathy is dependent on an individual having had that experience, um, perspective taking is more dependent on, on the the attempt at, at an objective um, uh, understanding of that other person's experience. You don't need to have lived it yourself. You don't need to be philosophically aligned to it. It just means pausing and taking into consideration that other person's perspective. Is that something that um, you've, you've thought much about? Because it, it does um, imbue a kind of kindness in the things that you've been that you've been talking about. There's a respect for different points of view um, that um, comes through from, from my point of view in your research and in the comments that you're, you're making. Um, so have, have you thought about that and how important is it? I do think that there's, um, to be a social scientist is to try to understand the experiences of other people or you're, you, you can't have insights. I mean, you can, I guess you can look at yourself and see the silly things you do and create research around that. And I like doing that too, for sure. And it's really awesome when people do that. No doubt there's great insights, but for social science, it really requires in a sense, perspective taking on other people. And um, I think there's a, there's a real distinction between understanding, trying to understand why someone is feeling the way they feel or doing what they're doing and agreeing with it and I think they get conflated so I think you can understand why someone is doing something you strongly disagree with it doesn't mean that then you say oh it's fine you can still say I don't like what you're doing but it's still your job as a social scientist to understand why they're doing it right like that that's step one for a social scientist 
maybe then you do another project to change behavior or whatever else you want to do. But there is a real um, humility isn't exactly the right word, but the I have no idea what other people are thinking and feeling is a good place to start. <laughs> like that's, that's just true. You definitely do not know. And so you have to start by trying to understand that. There was a great paper by um, Mary Steffel and Nick Epley. I'm hoping it was both of them on this paper. Um, but they basically showed that um, the way to get good perspective taking, it turns out is to ask people questions. So you like rather than come up with some checklist or strategy for understanding other people or whatever, you know, put yourself in their shoes or something, something, maybe those are fine. Maybe they're not, but literally the research says that the only way to do it is to ask people. And it's, I mean, it's so, it's so obvious, of course, but it's so important to the way they articulated it because we don't, you're, you know, someone says something to you and you think, Oh, I know what she meant by that. You definitely didn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? You just, cause there's 10 million things the person could have meant by that and you picked one. It's so unlikely that that's the one that she meant. So in, in personal interaction with people you know and with people you don't know, trying to get to the, well, why would people be doing you know, what they're doing? What are the drivers of that? Well, and you can then say, what would I do in that situation? But that's secondary to what are they thinking and feeling? So that's uh, yet another really powerful insight to help all of us as we drive behavioral change initiatives, and especially in the face of something like uh, COVID-19, but now also um, as we look at challenges with um, you know, repairing um, the, the social fabric around the relationship between police and the community, um, there's, there's a lot of work to do. And there's a lot of polarization that seems more extreme perhaps sometimes than it is or seems insurmountable. And I think that you've given many wonderful insights to help us drive positive change to make our society healthier, uh, potentially wealthier and hopefully happier. So thank you so much for your time today. I really love hearing your stories, your research and all of the really useful shout outs that you did to the community of scientists. Thanks so much, Kelly. Thank you.